Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 83, Requiem for a Friend. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Well, hello, everyone. Um, many of you have already seen either my Mama Own Knits blog or the Craftlet show notes, and you know that... Um, a good friend of our family's uh, was killed in Kabul this week. I don't know how many of you clicked on links to some of his memorials, but um, if you if you're on Facebook, just type in his name Thor Hesla, and you'll find a group um, called "In Memory of Our Friend Thor Hesla." Just look at the number of people that are on there, and those are just Facebook people. Uh, there was a memorial for him in Atlanta. Uh, yesterday that we weren't able to attend and there will be one at the end of February in Washington DC that we hope to attend Um, certainly if you're in Washington drop me a line and let me know I don't know how long I'll be there but but um, Thor (laughs) Thor held a very special place in my heart I spent much of my time when I was dating Andrew back at UCLA in the late 80s wearing one of Thor's rugby shirts and I honestly couldn't believe the stories that Andrew told about Thor. I mean, probably the most famous that I remember was that he went uh, climbing Half Dome in Yosemite, fell off it, landed on his head, and he's a a big guy. (laughs) He landed on his head, and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, it was New Year's, and he was at a New Year's party, I think at Andrew's house, and um, got really drunk and started pulling his stitches out or at least trying to, evidently as a way to impress the girls. <laughs> which which just gives you some idea of Thor. I, a, a lot of people who didn't um, get his sense of humor thought that he was a misogynist or horrible or, or rude. And he was probably all of those things as well. But the man had a heart the size of the planet, he spent his entire adult life working to make the world a better place in ways that you and I would be terrified of doing. He spent a lot of time in Kabul. He spent, obviously, the last four months in Afghanistan. Um, everywhere he went was dangerous, and everywhere he went he had a ball, and he left the place better than he found it. And that's the kind of guy who gets killed by a suicide bomber. So. It has not been a good week here. Um, However, like I said, I have received the most lovely emails from so many of you, people who have written to me before, people like Mrs. Wade, who calls herself a lurker and says that she'd never written before, but she wanted to send her her wishes to me. And um, having been a lurker on a number of podcasts and um, lists, groups, listservs like uh, on Yahoo!, I know how, being a lurker, you do get a, a pretty clear picture of who's talking or who's writing the most. And um, and I just want you to know that in a strange way, it goes both ways. When I get 
emails from the people who listen who say, well, I know, I've never written before, but so much of your personality comes through in your emails and, and, uh, and letters, and it, it really does become a kind of a, a lopsided community, but, but quite an important one, I think, especially as the world gets more and more strained and distant, and uh, maybe some of that is caused by technology, maybe some of that is just caused by, I don't know, what did Stephen Hawking call it? Um, um, entropy that uh, we just started moving and we've kept on moving. Uh, I don't know what's causing it, but I think places like this become very important, certainly have been important to me. So I've been trying to keep myself occupied. Both of my children have been sick this week, which just compounded the fun. And Andrew's been out of town. Yay. Lots of fun. So, um, I haven't had as much time for crafty stuff as I would have liked. I think it, it definitely would have been helpful to have something in my hands more often um, during the week. But I have been, I'm almost done with the first pair of Broad Street Glittens, the mittens that have a, uh, the, the half mittens or half gloves that have a mitten cover to them. This first one is for my father-in-law. And I have a question for those of you who have made these before, because I know it was quite a popular pattern back in 2002. Was the hand too big when you made the pattern? I got gauge, I've knitted the pattern, and the middle part of the palm fits just fine, but where it goes from ribbing to the palm, where there are some increases, it's humongous. I don't think that's a bad thing. I know circulating air, especially with a dense knit, is not a bad thing. It helps keep you warmer, but um, but it seems awfully big. The next pair I'm going to be doing... Um, a cabled, uh, well, a, a fake cable pattern on the back of the hand, and I imagine that will tighten up anything uh, untoward in the pattern. But I'm curious. If you've had any issues with making these patterns, please, please, please drop me a line at mamaonits.com, mamaonits at gmail.com. Uh, the other thing I've been working on is, again, more wire wrapping. The The jewelry thing is is really interesting to me, mostly because I thought it was a lot more complicated than it is. Mostly, as with knitting, it's having the right tools. Using really lousy wire makes it very difficult for you. Using sterling silver wire makes it really easy. It's much, much easier to use. And um, I think the amount of sterling silver wire that I used for one project cost me almost two dollars for an entire bracelet. And the bracelet came out really, really beautifully. And of course, I didn't take a picture of it. I sent it off to my sister in Germany. Uh, I'm hoping that I can get her to take a picture of it for me, maybe on her wrist, because uh, it really, it came out quite lovely and I was, I was very happy. I'm also finding that as I'm at the beginning of learning a new craft, I want very much to copy patterns that I see in magazines. And I'm, I'm curious to see how long it's going to take before I don't need that anymore. I know with knitting, with crocheting, with sketching and watercolors, with all of that, it's exactly the same thing. I, I feel the need to follow very closely, I guess even cooking, follow very closely a pattern or a recipe. And then at a certain point, everything just clicks into place and I kind of go, oh, I get it. All I need to know is my gauge or all I need to know is how much dough I should have at the end or... Um, all I need to know is, is what are the flavors that I like or what's going to happen if I mix this with cerulean blue. I, 
once I kind of have the basics down, I do get to the point where I like to experiment. And I don't know that I used to be like that. I, I'm wondering if this is part of just growing older and feeling a little more settled in your own skin. I know there are some people who are true artists who sit down and create just out of nowhere with their own brains as their inspiration. And my two boys seem to be those kinds of people. And I'm thrilled. And my my youngest, my younger boy, who is going to turn four on Sunday, we call him Thing Two, he has started writing his name completely spontaneously. He's just been paying a lot of attention. He could spell his name verbally, but he had never seemed very interested in writing it. And now he writes it on everything. So it's been it's been an interesting couple of weeks. My older son is having a wonderful time at his new school. Truly, I I'm overwhelmed at how wonderful the parents are and how welcoming everybody is. And especially during a week like this last one, it's made it's made quite an impact on me. So that's my crafty stuff for this week. Oh, I also made a, a hideous mistake. I bought two looms. We got an email that there were two looms available at one of the um, secondhand stores here in town. And I thought, well, Aaron's sick. He likes going to secondhand stores because he looks for electronics that he can take apart. So I thought, well, I'll look at looms and he'll find some electronic thing and we'll go home and he'll be happy. So we went and looked at the electronics and he didn't find anything new that he didn't already have. And then we found the looms and he got jazzed about the looms. One was a rigid huddle loom. It's old. It's either Swedish or Danish. I don't think it's Norwegian. It doesn't have the kind of symbols that you get in Norwegian. But this shows you how much I know about Scandinavian languages. I know it's not Finnish. That much I know. Um, it's uh, it's beautifully built. It's well put together. It only has one reed. And I didn't realize that until about 15 minutes ago. So now I'm going to have to figure out if I can change out the reed in this particular setup or if I'm going to have to build myself um, kind of heddle rods or shafts or I don't know what you call it on a rigid heddle loom. Well, I guess it is a heddle. A rigid heddle loom, um, the whole piece that you raise or lower usually has some kind of cross beam that you can um, support on some kind of central pillar so that you can raise and lower your shed. I'm going to have to figure this one out. Uh, it's going to take a little more look-seeing on my part. The other loom that I got was, I think, a really great deal. It's a now I have to go look at it again. It's another Scandinavian loom. It's a tapestry loom, and it's a good size for learning. It's also a good size for making completed objects. But the nice thing about it is it already has a tapestry started, and it's all natural wool. And some of it's just plain roving, and some of it is yarn. But it's clearly done by a beginner who decided that she was bored <laughs> before she finished. and. Um, and it's a shame because she really did a lovely job. And uh, I'm going to see if I can complete the thing that's on there. It's a nice solid frame. It also has little legs to create a stand out of it. And uh, I'm very excited. I'm also gearing up for teaching the final two classes in a class called From Shipa to Kipa, which I've mentioned before, having the kids at the local synagogue um, both wash, dye, spin, and eventually knit or crochet their own yarmulkes. I've been trying to do kind of demo versions of said yarmulkes, and I 
I'm having a hard time. The knitted one, I was able to knit a perfect circle by doing, um, a friend of mine called it a Norwegian shawl. Boy, today is all about Scandinavia. Um, where you, you basically short row your way around in a circle. So you go up to the middle, you come back down, you go up five short of the middle, you come back down, you go up five short of the last stopping place, you go back down, you go up five short of the last stopping place, you go back down. And you keep doing this until you run out of work, workable stitches. And then you knit all the way to the center again. And you basically make triangle wedges all the way around, creating a circle. You do have to kind of fudge the center a little bit if you're going to try and make a circle because you don't want to keep knitting into the same stitch. At the same time, you don't want to keep knitting a new stitch in the middle or you'll wind up with kind of a friar tuck head hole in the middle of your kippah. So I knitted that not thinking about the fact that I was knitting in stockinette and the edges rolled. So I tried to do an I-cord edging to kind of give the edge some weight and weigh itself down and that was just disastrous and I haven't quite figured out what I did wrong but I still think the concept is right it's the execution that I'm messing up on so if any of you have made knitted or crocheted kippah out of real yarn not out of crochet thread which I know is the way most people do it I need to I need to be able to adapt a pattern for kids who are spinning worsted to chunky yarn some of them are going to be able to crochet very quickly <laughs> because their yarn is so fat. But that's fine too. It's theirs. And I'm really, I'm really excited to see how these turn out. And I promise when they are done, I will put up pictures of, uh, of what the kids are doing. But now, on to Frankenstein. I need to read a couple of emails that I got. Um, some really good ones. Uh, one is from Femke, who said, I haven't listened to the whole of episode 82 yet, but something strikes me. From the things we've heard so far from Victor, I gathered that the monster's looks are not acceptable to other humans. But as I listen to the monster's narrative, I get the impression that Victor succeeded in creating his mind and personality perfectly. The monster seems to have a fully functioning brain, and from the way he talks about the humans he observes, he seems to be capable of love and other emotions as well. To me, Victor's rejection of the monster in the earlier chapters, therefore, seems to be entirely because of its looks. And I always thought that creating a human brain and human emotions would be the most difficult, but apparently Victor does not take these features of a human into account. Doesn't that reveal something about Victor? I wrote back to her and I said, yes, absolutely. I think that reveals everything you're supposed to get about Victor. It also brings up an interesting part of the, the larger kind of backstory to Frankenstein. Some people talk about how the descriptions of the monster's looks are purely subjective, coming from Victor, who's just freaked out by having done it, or the monster who is being shunned by society. He, he calls himself ugly. He calls himself hideous. Victor calls him the same things. However, the monster has only really seen himself in, uh, I think, a lake, and that's not necessarily a great mirror. He also, he clearly has had negative responses to how he looks, but we also know he's about eight feet tall. So facially, he might be just fine or, you know, passable. It may just be his size. It's very hard to know. And Mary Shelley doesn't work very hard to give us more information on that. I think mostly because it doesn't matter what he's really like. What matters is how he feels about the way he's being responded to and about how 
we perceive Victor, since he is a, a person who could abandon his own creation the way he did. So I think I think Femke brings up some really interesting points. And I think a lot of what we see about Victor's responses to people and to the creature give us a lot of insight into Victor's personality flaws, of which there are many. Um, I also got an email from Sandy Lee, who sent a funny email. She said, I was working on the lightning bolt bit of my Horcrux socks while listening to Frankenstein, and I looked down and noticed that I'd made some kind of major but unidentifiable mistake about three rows back. I thought to myself, I've created a monster. And then I was very amused with myself. Knitters create monsters all the time, just like Victor. We get swept up in the creative process and the thrill of endless possibilities. We get drunk on our power to knit anything imaginable. And then, when it is, of course, too late, we realize that something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. May I suggest an I've created a yarn monster contest? I think this is a wonderful idea. And it goes along with our What Would Madame Defarge Knit? I think if you guys wanted to send in to me your I've created a yarn monster uh, stories with pictures, if you can, it would be wonderful. I have one of my own, which I'll share with you later. But please feel free to send stuff in, and um, and then I'll, I'll read off the information and post uh, the pictures on the show notes. Along with that, I need to say that we have a couple of other... Um, sweeteners coming for January donations. Some of them that are culinary, and then we have the one from Cheeky Redhead, which is a bunch of yarn goodiness, and I will give you more information on that in the next podcast. Um, We have two more left to go before the end of January, so go ahead and donate and put yourself in the running for some fun goodness. Now, on a more serious note, last week I made uh, a mistake when I was talking about how Mary Shelley refers to Muslims as Mohammedans and that that was incorrect because Muslims don't worship Muhammad. And I made a comment about Catholic saints. Our friend Julie, who runs the happycatholic.blogspot.com blog site, wrote to fill me in on a finer point of um, Catholicism. I'm going to just read what she wrote to me um, so you can hear it too. When you say that Mohammedans don't worship Muhammad or pray to him the way that one might worship or pray to St. Christopher or Mary, that's an incorrect understanding of how saints are viewed and related to. We don't pray to Mary or any saint in terms of worship, ever, period. It's a big misconception. Although it may have just been misspeaking on your part, I know how it goes when, when you get an intro going. Anyway, praying to a saint is akin to calling a friend to ask them to pray for you. We ask saints for their intercession with God, assuming that since they've already made it to heaven, they might have a little bit more pull than we do. They're they're a more worthy person to ask. Also, since the saint may have had the same problem that one is experiencing, we feel that they will put their backs into it, so to speak, to help us out of a problem that they can identify with. One can say that we venerate the saints, meaning honor them or respect them, but we don't worship them. Worship is reserved for God alone. End of story. And she added, and we don't worship statues. Those statues are like the photos that we have sitting around to remind us of loved ones. But that's a whole other thing, right? Well, I wrote back to her and I said, this is very interesting because my whole perception of saints and their usage had been based on, um, you know, things that you pick up as you go through life, but also on a particular museum exhibit that I saw in New York at the Brooklyn Museum years ago. It was probably 1997. That was, um, it showed how... Catholic, well, Christian, but specifically Catholic uh, imagery and iconography changed when it went to South America. 
once the Spanish conquistadors showed up with their religion, you know, there was already a very healthy indigenous religion. There were a series of them happening up and down Central America and, and down in and Mexico and, and down into South America. So the Spaniards show up with Catholic, with Catholicism, and all of a sudden the artwork that in most cases looks fairly similar to kind of standard Italian or Spanish religious artwork it changes. At, at first it changes subtly and then it changes more and more noti- noticeably. Of course, the most well-known uh, example, example of that is the Virgin of Guadalupe, which you see all over the Southwest, but which doesn't didn't show up anywhere else in that form before the religion came to this part of the world. So she wrote back to me, because we write back and forth to each other all the time. I'm getting to that one. So Julie wrote that her sister-in-law is both Hispanic and Catholic. She said, uh, she mentioned that one of the things she didn't like was the Hispanic approach to the saints. This all too often can take the form of actually extending worship to the saints. However, as she and I discussed, that is completely wrong and in fact condemned by the church, as it extends worship to the instrument, if you will, rather than the source. The saints themselves would be horrified to have any such worship given to them, and that's the reason that stories of some saints from more modern times, Padre Pio, for example, will have them either denying a supernatural ability or negating it, all while they point towards God. In fact, this is also a problem with the misconception of Mary in the church, which often is a huge problem for Protestants. Again, worship can wrongly be given to Mary, but she exists to point to her son. The most spectacular example of this is the story of the wedding at Cana, where Mary finds out that there is not enough wine for the feast. She goes to Jesus, telling him of the problem. Ostensibly, he rejects her, but she turns to the servants and tells them, do whatever he tells you. This is her function as mother to Christians, to take our problems to Jesus, which has its roots in the Old Testament examples of the Queen Mother, like Solomon's mother, and then you wait for his decision and obey his will. Mary and the saints know their place in the scheme of things. The fact that some people might find it easier to latch onto and wrongly worship them is something that is part of human nature, but that the church constantly reminds us not to, is not valid. And I asked her back if that was the reason why in so many paintings of saints, you see them pointing to heaven, pointing to God. And she said, yeah, that's that's exactly why. Their job is to help you get your message to God, which I think is pretty cool. And now I know why they're always pointing to God. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was just because they were pointing to God. Now I know there's a bigger reason. So that's our little catechism lesson for today. I love learning this stuff. And if anybody knows more about Islam, because that's going to pop up again today, please feel free to write to me. I just, by the way, found the other um, incentive for this month. I have so many, so many pieces of paper. Um, the One of our listeners, who I've just started writing with, Jenny, has an ungodly talent for making really cool things with clay. She makes bowls, she makes um, mugs, and she has said that she will um, give to one of the January donors a custom-made mug in either a knitting or a spinning motif. So, if you are the lucky winner of that drawing, you will I will get you in contact with Jenny and you guys can discuss which mug you want. I'm going to put a, a picture of one of her mugs onto the show notes because you will be blown away, as was I. It's just adorable. And uh, I'm also... Jenny, email me and tell me if you have an Etsy store or something like that, because I need to put a link to it. So that is very exciting. Okay, now back to Frankenstein. 
So chapter 14, which we start with today, takes us back to Paris, which I found deeply amusing because we just left Paris shortly ago. But part of the story here is um, Mary Shelley is setting up um, a plot and um, character development that allows us to see two things. One is that we see that the monster is not the only one suffering. So is the DeLacy family and Safie. The other is that we see that the monster understands that he is not the only one suffering. He is, um, he is an outsider. He's kind of the ultimate outsider. There is only one of his kind on the planet, and it is he. Um, but this whole concept of the outsider or being alone is something that's repeated throughout the text. For instance, Victor is an outsider too, made an outsider by this horrible secret that he carries around with him, and also, assumedly, from his superior intellect that he's, um, he's different than other people. Certainly, if you've been able to figure out how to give life, you've probably done well on your SATs. To a lesser extent, Walton is an outsider. He talks about that in the beginning, that, you know, he just he just was looking for a friend, someone who he could talk to, that all he really could find in that vein was to read poetry, and, and so he felt like an outsider. And of course, Shelley herself was an incredible outsider. I mean, she got married very, very young, but those first 16 years spent in her father's house had to be extraordinary, and also had to make her so completely different from all of the other people her age that um, I don't I don't see how she could have felt otherwise than um, than just kind of feeling like you're a freak in the middle of normalcy and of course that's probably one of the reasons why she ran off with Shelley his his crew of friends must have felt like home to her uh, compared to you know a a more Jane Austen like existence of uh, sitting around and, and waiting for a man with 1500 to, to come by and, and marry you. Um, so today we're, we're going to get more of the alone stuff and we're going to get more of the suffering stuff. We also, you need to think as you're listening about the parallel that Shelley is presenting you with. You have Felix and you have Safi and Safi's tough. She's probably the toughest female in the book. Um, and then you have Victor and Justine and Justine is more passive and and also dead at this point. Look at how Felix responds to safety's to safety's uh, dangerous situation, and then think back to how Victor responded to Justine's dangerous situation. And I think you'll see how Shelley is is trying to build a case, um, either for or against uh, Victor. And um, and it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, definitely. I'm going to go ahead and play chapters 14 and 15 for you today, and then I'm going to talk to you a little bit at the end, because there's some things that I don't want to to give away before you hear them. So, here we go with chapters 14 and 15 of Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, by Mary Shelley. Some time elapsed before I learned the history of my friends. It was one which could not fail to impress itself deeply on my mind, unfolding as it did in a number of circumstances, each interesting and wonderful to one so utterly inexperienced as I was. The name of the old man was de Lacy. He was descended from a good family in France, where he had lived for many years in affluence, respected by his superiors and beloved by his equals. His son was bred in the service of his country, and Agatha had ranked with ladies of the highest distinction. A few months before my arrival, they had lived in a large and luxurious city called Paris, 
surrounded by friends, and possessed of every enjoyment which virtue, refinement of intellect, or taste, accompanied by a moderate fortune, could afford. The father of Safi had been the cause of their ruin. He was a Turkish merchant, and had inhabited Paris for many years, when for some reason which I could not learn, he became obnoxious to the government. He was seized and cast into prison the very day that Safi arrived from Constantinople to join him. He was tried and condemned to death. The injustice of his sentence was very flagrant. All Paris was indignant, and it was judged that his religion and wealth, rather than the crime alleged against him, had been the cause of his condemnation. Felix had accidentally been present at the trial. His horror and indignation were uncontrollable when he heard the decision of the court. He made at that moment a solemn vow to deliver him, and then looked around for the means. After many fruitless attempts to gain admittance to the prison, he found a strongly grated window in an unguarded part of the building, which lighted the dungeon of the unfortunate Mohammedan, who, loaded with chains, waited in despair the execution of the barbarous sentence. Felix visited the grate at night and made known to the prisoner his intentions in his favor. The Turk, amazed and delighted, endeavored to rekindle the zeal of his deliverer by promises of reward and wealth. Felix rejected his offers with contempt. Yet when he saw the lovely Safi, who was allowed to visit her father, and who by her gestures expressed her lively gratitude, the youth could not help owning to his own mind that the captive possessed a treasure which would fully reward his toil and hazard. The Turk quickly perceived the impression that his daughter had made on the heart of Felix, and endeavored to secure him more entirely in his interests by the promise of her hand in marriage so soon as he should be conveyed to a place of safety. Felix was too delicate to accept this offer, yet he looked forward to the probability of the event as to the consummation of his happiness. During the ensuing days, while the preparations were going forward for the escape of the merchant, the zeal of Felix was warmed by several letters that he received from this lovely girl, who found means to express her thoughts in the language of her lover by the aid of an old man, a servant of her father who understood French. She thanked him in the most ardent terms for his intended services toward her parent, and at the same time she gently deplored her own fate. I have copies of this letters, for I found means during my residence in the hovel to procure implements of writing, and the letters were often in the hands of Felix or Agatha. Before I depart, I will give them to you. They will prove the truth of my tale. But at present, as the sun is already far declined, I shall only have time to repeat the substance of them to you. Safi related that her mother was a Christian Arab, seized and made a slave by the Turks. Recommended by her beauty, she had won the heart of the father of Safi, who married her. The young girl spoke in high and enthusiastic terms of her mother, who, born in freedom, spurned the bondage to which she was now reduced. She instructed her daughter in the tenets of her religion, and taught her to aspire to higher powers of intellect and an independence of spirit forbidden to the female followers of Mohammed. This lady died, but her lessons were indelibly impressed on the mind of Safi, who sickened at the prospect of again returning to Asia and being immured within the walls of a harem, allowed only to occupy herself with infantile amusements ill-suited to the temper of her soul, now accustomed to grand ideas and a noble emulation for virtue. The prospect of marrying a Christian and remaining in a country where women were allowed to take a rank in society was enchanting to her. The day for the execution of the Turk was fixed, but on the night previous to it he quitted his prison and before morning was distant many leagues from Paris. Felix had procured passports in the name of his father, sister, and himself. He had previously communicated his plan to the former, 
who aided the deceit by quitting his house under the pretense of a journey, and concealed himself with his daughter in an obscure part of Paris. Felix conducted the fugitives through France to Lyon, and across Mount Cenis to Leghorn, where the merchant had decided to wait a favorable opportunity of passing into some part of the Turkish dominions. Safi resolved to remain with her father until the moment of his departure, before which time the Turk renewed his promise that she should be united to his deliverer, and Felix remained with them in expectation of that event. And in the meantime he enjoyed the society of the Arabian, who exhibited toward him the simplest and tenderest affection. They conversed with one another through the means of an interpreter, and sometimes with the interpretation of looks, and Safi sang to him the divine airs of her native country. The Turk allowed this intimacy to take place, and encouraged the hopes of the youthful lovers, while in his heart he had formed far other plans. He loathed the idea that his daughter should be united to a Christian, but he feared the resentment of Felix if he should appear lukewarm, for he knew that he was still in the power of his deliverer if he should choose to betray him to the Italian state which they inhabited. He revolved a thousand plans by which he should be enabled to prolong the deceit until it might be no longer necessary, and secretly to take his daughter with him when he departed. His plans were facilitated by the news which arrived from Paris. The government of France were greatly enraged at the escape of their victim, and spared no pains to detect and punish his deliverer. The plot of Felix was quickly discovered, and de Lacy and Agatha were thrown into prison. The news reached Felix, and roused him from his dream of pleasure. His blind and aged father and his gentle sister lay in a noisome dungeon while he enjoyed the free air and the society of her whom he loved. This idea was torture to him. He quickly arranged with the Turk that if the latter should find a favorable opportunity for escape before Felix could return to Italy, Safi should remain as a boarder at a convent in Leghorn, and then, quitting the lovely Arabian, he hastened to Paris and delivered himself up to the vengeance of the law, hoping to free de Lacy and Agatha by this proceeding. He did not succeed. They remained confined for five months before the trial took place, the result of which deprived them of their fortune and condemned them to a perpetual exile from their native country. They found a miserable asylum in the cottage in Germany, where I discovered them. Felix soon learned that the treacherous Turk, for whom he and his family endured such unheard-of oppression, on discovering that his deliverer was thus reduced to poverty and ruin, became a traitor to good feeling and honor, and had quitted Italy with his daughter, insultingly sending Felix a pittance of money to aid him, as he said, in some plan of future maintenance. Such were the events that preyed on the heart of Felix, and rendered him, when I first saw him, the most miserable of his family. He could have endured poverty, and while this distress had been the meed of his virtue, he gloried in it. But the ingratitude of the Turk and the loss of his beloved safety were misfortunes more bitter and irreparable. The arrival of the Arabian now infused new life into his soul. When the news reached Leghorn that Felix was deprived of his wealth and rank, the merchant commanded his daughter to think no more of her lover, but to prepare to return to her native country. The generous nature of Safi was outraged by this command. She attempted to expostulate with her father, but he left her angrily, reiterating his tyrannical mandate. A few days after, the Turk entered his daughter's apartment and told her hastily that he had reason to believe that his residence at Leghorn had been divulged, and he should speedily be delivered up to the French government. He had consequently hired a vessel to convey him to Constantinople, for which city he should sail in a few hours. He intended to leave his daughter under the care of a confidential servant, to follow at her leisure with the greater part of his property, which had not yet arrived at Leghorn. When alone, Safi resolved in her own mind 
the plan of conduct that it would become her to pursue in this emergency. A residence in Turkey was abhorrent to her. Her religion and her feelings were alike averse to it. By some papers of her father, which fell into her hands, she heard of the exile of her lover, and learnt the name of the spot where he then resided. She hesitated some time, but at length she formed her determination. Taking with her some jewels that belonged to her, and a sum of money, she quitted Italy with an attendant, a native of Leghorn, but who understood the common language of Turkey, and departed for Germany. She arrived in safety at a town about twenty leagues from the cottage of de Lacy, when her attendant fell dangerously ill. Safi nursed her with the most devoted affection, but the poor girl died, and the Arabian was left alone, unacquainted with the language of the country, and utterly ignorant of the customs of the world. She fell, however, into good hands. The Italian had mentioned the name of the spot for which they were bound, and after her death the woman of the house in which they lived took care that Safi should arrive in safety at the cottage of her lover. CHAPTER Fifteen. Such was the history of my beloved cottagers. It impressed me deeply. I learned from the views of social life which it developed to admire their virtues and to deprecate the vices of mankind. As yet I looked upon crime as a distant evil, benevolence and generosity were ever present before me, inciting within me a desire to become an actor in the busy scene where so many admirable qualities were called forth and displayed. But in giving an account of the progress of my intellect, I must not omit a circumstance which occurred in the beginning of the month of August of the same year. One night, during my accustomed visit to the neighboring woods, where I collected my own food and brought home firing for my protectors, I found on the ground a leathern portmanteau containing several articles of dress and some books. I eagerly seized the prize and returned with it to my hovel. Fortunately, the books were written in the language, the elements of which I had acquired at the cottage. They consisted of Paradise Lost, a volume of Plutarch's Lives, and The Sorrows of Werther. The possession of these treasures gave me extreme delight. I now continually studied and exercised my mind upon these histories, whilst my friends were employed in their ordinary occupations. I can hardly describe to you the effect of these books. They produced in me an infinity of new images and feelings, that sometimes raised me to ecstasy, but more frequently sunk me into the lowest dejection. In The Sorrows of Werther, besides the interest of its simple and affecting story, so many opinions are canvassed, and so many lights thrown upon what had hitherto been to me obscure subjects, that I found in it a never-ending source of speculation and astonishment. The gentle and domestic manners it described, combined with lofty sentiments and feelings, which had for their object something out of self, accorded well with my experience among my protectors, and with the wants which were forever alive in my own bosom. But I thought Werther himself, was a more divine being than I had ever beheld or imagined. His character contained no pretension, but it sank deep. The disquisitions upon death and suicide were calculated to fill me with wonder. I did not pretend to enter into the merits of the case, yet I inclined towards the opinions of the hero, whose extinction I wept without precisely understanding it. As I read, however, I applied much personally to my own feelings and condition. I found myself similar, yet at the same time strangely unlike to the beings concerning whom I read, and to whose conversation I was a listener. I sympathized with, and partly understood them, but I was unformed in mind. I was dependent on none, and related to none. The path of my departure was free, and there was none to lament my annihilation. 
my person was hideous, and my stature gigantic. What did this mean? Who was I? What was I? Whence did I come? What was my destination? These questions continually recurred, but I was unable to solve them. The volume of Plutarch's Lives, which I possessed, contained the histories of the first founders of the ancient republics. This book had a far different effect on me from the sorrows of Virtue. I learned from Virtue's imaginations despondency and gloom, but Plutarch taught me high thoughts. He elevated me above the wretched sphere of my own reflections to admire and love the heroes of past ages. Many things I read surpassed my understanding and experience. I had a very confused knowledge of kingdoms, wide extents of country, mighty rivers, and boundless seas, but I was perfectly unacquainted with towns and large assemblages of men. The cottage of my protectors had been the only school in which I had studied human nature, but this book developed new and mightier scenes of action. I read of men concerned in public affairs, governing or massacring their species. I felt the greatest ardor for virtue rise within me, an abhorrence for vice, as far as I understood the signification of those terms, relative as they were, as I applied them, to pleasure and pain alone. Induced by these feelings, I was, of course, led to admire peaceable lawgivers, Numa, Solon, and Lycurgus, in preference to Romulus and Theseus. The patriarchal lives of my protectors caused these impressions to take a firm hold on my mind. Perhaps, if my first introduction to humanity had been made by a young soldier burning for glory and slaughter, I should have been imbued with different sensations. But Paradise Lost excited different and far deeper emotions. I read it as I'd read the other volumes which had fallen into my hands as a true history. It moved every feeling of wonder and awe that the picture of an omnipotent God warring with his creatures was capable of exciting. I often referred the several situations as their similarity struck me to my own. Like Adam, I was apparently united by no link to any other being in existence. But his state was far different from mine in every other respect. He had come forth from the hands of a god, a perfect creature, happy and prosperous, guarded by the especial care of his creator. He was allowed to converse with and acquire knowledge from beings of a superior nature, but I was wretched, helpless, and alone. Many times I considered Satan as the fitter emblem of my condition, for often, like him, when I viewed the bliss of my protectors, the bitter gall of envy rose within me. Another circumstance strengthened and confirmed these feelings. Soon after my arrival in the hovel, I discovered some papers in the pocket of the dress which I had taken from your laboratory. At first I had neglected them, but now that I was able to decipher the characters in which they were written, I began to study them with diligence. It was your journal of the four months that preceded my creation. You minutely described in these papers every step you took in the progress of your work. This history was mingled with accounts of domestic occurrences. You doubtless recollect these papers. Here they are. Everything is related in them which bears reference to my accursed origin. The whole detail of that series of disgusting circumstances which produced it is set in view. The minutest description of my odious and loathsome person is given, in language which painted your own horrors and rendered mine indelible. I sickened as I read. Hateful day when I receive life! I exclaimed in agony. Accursed creator, why did you form a monster so hideous that even you turned from me in disgust? God in pity made man beautiful and alluring after his own image, but my form is a filthy type of yours, more horrid even from the very resemblance. Satan had his companions, fellow devils, to admire and encourage him, but I am solitary and abhorred. 
these were the reflections of my hours of despondency and solitude, but when I contemplated the virtues of the cottagers, their amiable and benevolent dispositions, I persuaded myself that when they should become acquainted with my admiration of their virtues, they would compassionate me and overlook my personal deformity. Could they turn from their door one, however monstrous, who solicited their compassion and friendship? I resolved at least not to despair, but in every way to fit myself for an interview with them which would decide my fate. I postponed this attempt for some months longer, for the importance attached to its success inspired me with a dread lest I should fail. Besides, I found that my understanding improved so much with every day's experience that I was unwilling to commence this undertaking until a few more months could have added to my sagacity. Several changes in the meantime took place in the cottage. The presence of Safi diffused happiness among its inhabitants, and I also found that a greater degree of plenty reigned there. Felix and Agatha spent more time in amusement and conversation, and were assisted in their labors by servants. They did not appear rich, but they were contented and happy. Their feelings were serene and peaceful, while mine became every day more tumultuous. Increase of knowledge only discovered to me more clearly what a wretched outcast I was. A cherished hope, it's true, but it vanished when I beheld my person reflected in water or my shadow in the moonshine, even as that frail image and that inconstant shade. I endeavored to crush these fears and to fortify myself for the trial which in a few months I resolved to undergo, and sometimes I allowed my thoughts, unchecked by reason, to ramble in the fields of paradise, and dared to fancy amiable and lovely creatures sympathizing with my feelings and cheering my gloom. Their angelic countenances breathed smiles of consolation. But it was all a dream. No eve soothed my sorrows nor shared my thoughts. I was alone. I remembered Adam's supplication to his Creator. But where was mine? He had abandoned me, and in the bitterness of my heart I cursed him. Autumn passed thus. I saw with surprise and grief the leaves decay and fall. And nature again assumed the barren and bleak appearance it had worn when I first beheld the woods and the lovely moon. Yet I did not heed the bleakness of the weather. I was better fitted by my confirmation for the endurance of cold than heat. But my chief delights were the sight of the flowers, the birds, and all the gay apparel of summer. When those deserted me, I turned with more attention towards the cottagers. Their happiness was not decreased by the absence of summer. They loved and sympathized with one another, and their joys, depending on each other, were not interrupted by the casualties that took place around them. The more I saw of them, the greater became my desire to claim their protection and kindness. My heart yearned to be known and loved by these amiable creatures. To see their sweet looks directed towards me with affection was the utmost limit of my ambition. I dared not think that they would turn them from me with disdain and horror. The poor that stopped at their door were never driven away. I asked, it is true, for greater treasures than a little food or rest. I required kindness and sympathy, but I did not believe myself utterly unworthy of it. The winter advanced, and an entire revolution of the seasons had taken place since I awoke into life. My attention at this time was solely directed towards my plan of introducing myself into the cottage of my protectors. I revolved many projects, but that on which I finally fixed was to enter the dwelling when the blind old man should be alone. I had sagacity enough to discover that the unnatural hideousness of my person was the chief object of horror with those who had formerly beheld me. My voice, although harsh, had nothing terrible in it. I thought, therefore, that if in the absence of his children I could gain the good will and mediation of the old de Lacy, 
I might by his means be tolerated by my younger protectors. One day, when the sun shone on the red leaves that strewed the ground and diffused cheerfulness, although it denied warmth, Safie, Agatha, and Felix departed on a long country walk, and the old man, at his own desire, was left alone in the cottage. When his children had departed, he took up his guitar and played several mournful but sweet airs, more sweet and mournful than I'd ever heard him play before. At first his countenance was illuminated with pleasure, but as he continued, thoughtfulness and sadness succeeded. At length, laying aside the instrument, he sat absorbed in reflection. My heart beat quick. This was the hour and moment of trial which would decide my hopes or realize my fears. The servants were gone to a neighboring fair. All was silent in and around the cottage. It was an excellent opportunity. Yet when I proceeded to execute my plan, my limbs failed me, and I sank to the ground. Again I rose, and exerting all the firmness of which I was master, removed the planks which I had placed before my hovel to conceal my retreat. The fresh air revived me, and with renewed determination I approached the door of their cottage. I knocked. "'Who is there?' said the old man. "'Come in.' I entered. "'Pardon this intrusion,' I said. "'I'm a traveller in want of a little rest.' "'You would greatly oblige me if you would allow me to remain a few minutes before the fire.' "'Enter,' said de Lacy, "'and I will try in what manner I can to relieve your wants. "'But, unfortunately, my children are from home, "'and as I'm blind, I'm afraid I should find it difficult to procure food for you.' "'Oh, do not trouble yourself, my kind host. "'I have food. "'It is warmth and rest only that I need.' "'I sat down, and a silence ensued.' I knew that every minute was precious to me, yet I remained irresolute in what manner to commence the interview. When the old man addressed me, "'By your language, stranger, I suppose you are my countryman. You are French?' "'No, but I was educated by a French family, and understand that language only. I am now going to claim the protection of some friends, whom I sincerely love, and of whose favour I have some hopes.' "'Are they Germans?' "'No, they are French. But let us change the subject.' I am an unfortunate and deserted creature. I look around, and I have no relation or friend upon earth. These amiable people to whom I go have never seen me, and know little of me. I am full of fears, for if I fail there, I am an outcast in the world forever. Oh, do not despair. To be friendless is indeed unfortunate, but the hearts of men, when unprejudiced by any obvious self-interest, are full of brotherly love and charity. Rely, therefore, on your hopes, and if these friends are good and amiable— do not despair. They are kind. They are the most excellent creatures in the world, but unfortunately they are prejudiced against me. I have good dispositions. My life has been hitherto harmless and in some degree beneficial, but a fatal prejudice clouds their eyes, and where they ought to see a feeling and kind friend, they behold only a detestable monster. That is indeed unfortunate, but if you are really blameless, cannot you undeceive them? I am about to undertake that task, and it is on that account that I feel so many overwhelming terrors. I tenderly love these friends. I have, unknown to them, been for many months in the habits of daily kindness toward them, but they believe that I wish to injure them, and that is the prejudice which I wish to overcome. Where do these friends reside? Near this spot. The old man paused and then continued, If you will unreservedly confide to me the particulars of your tale— I perhaps may be of use in undeceiving them. I am blind, and cannot judge of your countenance, but there is something in your words which persuades me that you are sincere. 
I am poor and an exile, but it will afford me true pleasure to be in any way serviceable to a human creature. Excellent man, I thank you and accept your generous offer. You raise me from the dust by this kindness, and I trust that by your aid I shall not be driven from the society and sympathy of your fellow creatures. Heaven forbid, even if you were really criminal, for that can only drive you to desperation and not instigate you to virtue. I also am unfortunate. I and my family have been condemned, although innocent. Judge, therefore, if I do not feel for your misfortunes. How can I thank you, my best and only benefactor? From your lips first have I heard the voice of kindness directed toward me. I shall be forever grateful, and your present humanity assures me of success with those friends whom I am on the point of meeting. May I know the names and residence of those friends? I paused. This, I thought, was the moment of decision, which was to rob me of or bestow happiness on me forever. I struggled vainly for firmness sufficient to answer him, but the effort destroyed all my remaining strength. I sank on the chair and sobbed aloud. At that moment I heard the steps of my younger protectors. I had not a moment to lose, but seizing the hand of the old man, I cried, Now is the time. Save and protect me. You and your family are the friends whom I seek. Do not you desert me in the hour of trial. Great God! exclaimed the old man. Who are you? At that instant the cottage door was opened, and Felix, Safi, and Agatha entered. Who can describe their horror and consternation on beholding me? Agatha fainted, and Safi, unable to attend to her friend, rushed out of the cottage. Felix started forward, and with supernatural force tore me from his father, to whose knees I clung. In a transport of fury he dashed me to the ground and struck me violently with a stick. I could have torn him limb from limb as the lion rends the antelope, but my heart sank within me as with bitter sickness, and I refrained. I saw him on the point of repeating his blow, when, overcome by pain and anguish, I quitted the cottage, and in the general tumult escaped unperceived to my hovel. End of chapter 15 all right, so there are a couple of things that are going to wind up uh, coming up again and again. And the first one is the book Paradise Lost. Uh, many of you have already heard references to it. Here it is. And I think the important and interesting thing is that the monster thinks it's a history. Like Plutarch's lives, he thinks that Paradise Lost is historical fact. Which, you know, depending on your religious ideas, that may be true too. But it's certainly a version written by Milton. Um he sees Adam, a creation, one of its kind, and Satan, a fallen angel, as parallels to himself. And I, I think those two competing ideas are really important. Um, also, in chapter 15, uh, he finds the papers in Victor's pocket, which reveals what his creator thought of him, and that certainly will fuel what we hear next week. So... We have a couple of incentives for January donations. We have the setup for some really good creature stuff next week. We have uh, saying goodbye to a good friend. And I've put a picture of my husband and Thor headbutting at Nancy's wedding on, uh, on the show notes so you can see what kind of big, big and big-hearted guy Thor was. And he is sorely missed. I hope next week is better for all of us, and especially for you. Have a great one. I'll talk to you in a week.
please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Go to knittingoutloud.com. Listen while you knit. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is supported by the generous donations of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, At least you can turn one on.